Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Breakpoint Podcast, starring myself, Frankie, and Marcus. And on today's episode, we are going to be wrapping up the Wimbledon 2022 tournament, specifically the men's final, because we pretty much covered the rest of the tournament in the last episode, but... Specifically, we want to talk about the men's final here. Uh, it was Nick Kyrgios versus Novak Djokovic, with Novak Djokovic prevailing in four sets, despite Nick Kyrgios winning that first set uh, pretty convincingly, I'd say. Came out the gates pretty strong. But, you know, Novak, in classic fashion, has just made that comeback, immediately made the mental reset, the minor tactical adjustments, wore his opponent down and wins his seventh Wimbledon, fourth in a row, first time he's ever won four majors in a row, and uh, gets to the number 21, surpassing Roger Federer, and is now uh, firmly and solely in second place all-time in majors, behind Rafael Nadal's 22. But a very interesting final, but uh, just a brief overview before we get there. Uh, Novak beat Cam Nori in exactly what Breakpoint Podcast predicted, four sets, Good call. Nice job, everyone. Really keeping the lights on around here. And then uh, Rafael Nadal did end up pulling out against uh, Nick Kyrgios with that torn torn lower abdomen, which was pretty disappointing. I think that was a match that we all had really wanted to see. But the future sort of looks a little uncertain now for Rafael Nadal as to how he's going to be playing the rest of the season, when he's going to come back, if he's going to try to make it for the U.S. Open. Lots of questions going on there, but first, let's hear a little bit about the match. Marcus, give us your, you know, sort of brief breakdown, the tactical things that you noticed, and uh, anything noteworthy that you had. Absolutely, and Frank, it's nice to be in person with you again. So we are both back from our trips. It's nice to record in person, so uh, really looking forward to that. Do you know how much easier it is to record this podcast when we're in the same time zone? It's a lot easier. Yeah, it's a lot easier when you're not, you know, figuring out nine-hour time difference. But, Frank, uh, today's match was honestly exactly how I expected it to go. Um, you knew Nick was going to come out hot that first set, played really, really well, served lights out, takes Djokovic. It seems like Djokovic in recently, not only just this tournament but other tournaments as well, really takes him a little bit to kind of get settled in, see the ball a little bit bigger, and really kind of get himself grounded into his game that he likes to play. So we saw that happen kind of the first and second set where they were kind of feeling each other out. And then the third set was really the deciding one where Novak really pulled away. And a couple of things that I saw tactically, let's talk purely tactics, Frank, was from Nick's side, Nick obviously wanted to kind of junk ball, play a la, a little bit like Pete Sampras, just serve really well, get Novak out of his rhythm on his own service games, try not to have extended rallies, lots of drop shots, lots of short slices, uh, which is not a bad play actually against Novak. Federer's used that pretty well against him before too. So uh, that was kind of Nick's deal, but Djokovic really wanted to have extended rallies and he wanted to attack Nick's forehand, specifically making Nick move towards his right. And that's something that he did really, really well in the second, third, and fourth sets. Nick's backhand is actually pretty, pretty solid. It um, was kind of hanging in there with Djokovic cross-court because at least Nick could run around the backhand and start cracking forehands. But once he started making Nick move to his right, Nick was a little bit uncomfortable going for broke a little bit too much, and then it would open up the backhand side again. What I would have liked to seen from Nick a little bit more, Frank, and I don't know if you notice this, 
during those backhand cross courts exchanges, I would have really liked to see Nick take that thing up the line early in the rally just to kind of get Novak out of his rhythm. I thought that he was giving Novak too much rhythm on that backhand, and we know we've discussed this. Djokovic has one of the best backhands ever. That's really tough to go up against head to head. I really wish he would have pulled that a little bit earlier, maybe even come into net on a couple of those. Um, but those were kind of my thoughts tactically. Serving-wise, Nick served lights out. Can't argue about anything about that. Uh, Djokovic didn't really serve that well, in my opinion. His first serve was a little bit better than the second serve. A lot of double faults. That first set, he double faulted on a break point, 30-40. That was not something that anybody really expected. So um, he kind of got away with it in that. And because he was serving kind of quote-unquote poorly, at least in my estimation for Djokovic's standards... I thought Nick could have done a lot better on the return. It just seemed like he was kind of playing it back towards the middle, trying to get into the rally, where I would have said, hey, Nick, just attack that thing. Go even more like Sampras. Just knock him completely out of his rhythm. Go for broke. All you really need is one break because you're serving so well right now that you really don't need more. Uh, What did you see, Frank, tactically? Yeah, I would largely agree with that assessment. I think a key thing to remember about this match is that Novak only broke Nick Kyrgios twice in the entire match, which kind of shows, like, Nick was serving just fine. For a player of Novak Djokovic's caliber, especially return-wise, to only break you twice is really... that You'll take that every day of the week. I think that the biggest problem with Nick was in the key moments, Nick was just choking the game away, choking the match away. The mental game was was the difference here, right? I mean, Nick was chirping almost every single point at the umpire, at his box, at himself, you know, at the crowd. I, I mean, it, it was almost like aloofness. And that was really the difference. You know, Novak must have felt like he was in bizarro world because he was the most mentally stable player on the court, uh, which is probably a new sensation for him, but in a Grand Slam final at least. But, you know, that was definitely the difference. Novak completely outmatured him, outclassed him, and, and, you know, there was no comparison by the end, at least in my opinion, between the two players. But, yeah, I, I think when you're in a baseline rally, it was very clear Novak was trying to get it into a backhand-to-backhand rally. He was waiting for Nick's backhand to either fly long, which it did multiple times, or Nick would just go for a little bit too tight of a shot on the net, and it would dump right in the net, which is what happened on match point, for example. Um, you know, Novak was really trying to avoid getting into forehand-to-forehand rallies because, you know, Nick, when he does hit that forehand and has the time one of the best forehands on the tour can hit it as well as anyone but Novak really avoided that match that you know type of rally at all during the match I think Kyrgios the mistakes are very clear um you know in the second set you're down you're up love 40 to break back and and even up the set and you know get into a tie break maybe or you know give yourself a chance to break Novak get the momentum back whatever blows the game and Novak ends up winning the set and then in the third game, in the third set, he's up 40 love on a service game and just completely falls apart and and gives up the set. And then that's it. You know, Novak only needs one break. And yes, I agree with you. Novak's serve wasn't great, but that was really his second serve wasn't great. His first serve was still like he was winning, I think, like 75 percent of points on his first serve at a 66 percent in percentage, which is like pretty good. You know, that not like not as good as Kyrgios, but like definitely good enough um the difference i think here was really in the returning that for me was the 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 
like from a tactical perspective, that was the biggest difference between the two um, outside of the mental part of the game. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny how Nick essentially in that third set, like we were talking about, Frank, I mean, we both saw that he essentially talked himself out of winning that service game like he literally just talked to his box and was like oh you know what i'm up 40 love you guys aren't supporting me blah blah it's like you know we know that nick does this and we know that this is kind of his coping mechanism of how he likes to play tennis and deal with whatever is going on with himself mentally but this is why i didn't pick him because i knew that wimbledon final against someone as solid as djokovic of a champion you're not going to be able to get away with that. You can get away with that against, you know, Christian Garin, Brandon Nakashima. No disrespect to those guys. Those guys are also great players. But this is a whole different level that we're talking about and a whole different event and kind of new scene for Nick. I mean, he'd never been in a Grand Slam final. He acted like he did in any other match, which was, you know, fine. Listen, if that makes him comfortable, but there are some moments where you got to figure out, you got to pick and choose those moments to really do it. And I think that's what really threw him off and... I mean, Frank, let, let, let's talk about maybe why he did these things, because we have a theory here on Breakpoint Podcast that Nick kind of feared winning this match because of all the expectations that it would bring, right? We've been saying for years, oh, Nick's never going to win a Grand Slam. Nick's, no, not mentally ready enough. Oh, he could totally win Grand Slams. He's talented enough. You know, what would happen if he does win one? Are you going to expect more of him? And I think all these thoughts were probably running through his head. I mean, he was already freaking out after Nadal pulled out. Because maybe he was thinking, ah, maybe I can get scapegoated here, lose to Nadal, and it'll be all cool. But once you're in that Wimbledon final and you're playing that well, people are kind of expecting it. And I think that he might have deep down inside said, you know what, I'm just not ready to do this or I don't know what's going to happen to myself and to expectations of those externally. You know, what? how are people going to view me? There are a lot of things probably running through his head if he wins this match. And we'll never know because he didn't win the match, but... It's a pretty relevant theory, at least in our opinions, Frank, and I'm going to let you you know, talk about that now and what your thoughts are. Yeah, I largely agree with you. I think that, you know, my the thing that changed for me from this match and my understanding of Nick Kyrgios is that for a long time, I thought that Nick was a guy that was driven by a fear of failure. And that's why sort of he had these mental outbursts was, you know, he just like got upset like he just cared so much about you know his game and how he played and everything like that and that's what caused those outbursts but today i really for the first time like watching him sort of realized that it's not a fear of failure that's driving this guy it's a fear of winning that's driving this guy you know he looked mortified on court like he couldn't even handle the post match interview like he could not handle that like he did not he looked so uncomfortable in that post match interview and i think that like he is a kind of guy that realizes like i can't i i i almost feel like he thinks that he is incapable of handling the fame and notori- notoriety and the everything that comes along with being a grand slam champion i think nick is absolutely terrified of having to deal with all of those eyes on him and spotlight and whatever I almost think that Nick causes the chaos that he does on court to distract from everything else that goes on in his life and about him. And that, you know, I think is is what I've gathered about Nick. Talent-wise, it's all there. The serve is there. The forehand's there. The backhand is certainly good enough. You know, athleticism-wise, he's a super athletic guy. It, it's, it's, it's all mental with him. And that's why he doesn't have a coach 
That's why he doesn't, you know, all of these things. I mean, I'm watching him and I'm saying, like, just put me in the, the box with this guy and I can coach. Like, please. Like, this is really not that hard to fix. Like, we're talking about adding a few, like, RPMs to a backhand and, like, being a little bit more uh, reserved in rallies and, like, this guy could have easily won a Grand Slam today. But instead, like, he just kind of, like, pissed away, like, multiple points during the match. And then he's 2-1 down on serve in the final set, in the fourth set tiebreak. And he's already talking about, like, whatever. It doesn't matter. Like, I don't care. It's just like, dude, like, this is not the time for you to lose your concentration. And you're already, like, you're gone. You're losing it already. And to add to that point that you made, Frank, I think that it, deep down inside, I think he's not only that fear of winning i think it's he's just really confused because parts of it seems like he wants to be a champion and he wants to be better because and my my dad pointed this out to me frank and we should probably take a listen to his podcast he's essentially stopped partying like he used to he used to be an absolute party animal and he has significantly drawn back on his partying and his drinking and if you haven't noticed he was in fantastic physical shape he's in the best shape that we have ever seen nick in could didn't seem like he was gasping for air about six months ago even to a year ago you'd see him play like even just a two out of three set match and you'd see him gasping for air he's in great shape he's been playing a lot he does an interesting breed of like basketball and tennis training where he's getting a lot of cardio and conditioning through that so and and he's picking his schedule wisely you know listen he doesn't like clay courts he's like whatever give up on the clay i don't like traveling that much but i'm going to focus my energy on grass he's done great on grass obviously uh and he can be always a threat at the u.s open on fast hard courts right any hard court in the world for that matter um and he loves obviously playing australia so i think part of him is like i want to pull it together but then there's still that other part of him where he's like i don't know if i want to deal with this and i think that it's a really confusing time for nick and i think that this match showed us a lot about him more than it did about Djokovic because we all know what Djokovic is about. So this showed us really what we can expect from Nick and what to expect going forward if he ever does make this um, you know, stage again, which I don't know, U.S. Open, he might. I mean, we got a, a couple uncertainties there. Djokovic might not be there because of COVID. Um, Nadal tours Ab. Who knows if he's going to be there with his blown foot too. Uh, Sverev's probably going to be out. I mean, who knows? After all, it's going to be wide open. So we'll see what the future holds for Nick. I'm I'm really excited if he does kind of get over that mental hurdle, because I mean, listen, if this guy is playing in Grand Slam finals, tennis is in a in a really good spot. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's good for the sport for Nick to be good um, on the whole, and I agree. U.S. Open that's looking wide open because Yannick Sinner, he's back. He looks as good as he has ever looked now. So that's a problem for all of these guys, right? Carlos Alcaraz, he's, you know, this guy's, <laughs> this is his worst surface. Let's all remember that, people. So, you know, it, it takes the last two majors, I mean, it's taken an extraordinary performance by the opposing player to beat him, right? He It was Zverev playing one of the best matches I've ever seen him play to beat him at Roland Garros, and Yannick Sinner playing the best match I have ever seen him play to beat him at Wimbledon. So that guy is, is he, Carlos Alcaraz is very, very much still in the picture. So, you know, U.S. Open going to be super, super interesting. Um, in terms of the other storylines of Wimbledon, you know, the women's final, I guess we should just briefly mention it. Uh, Rabakina 
um, ended up winning over Ans Jabor uh, th- uh, two sets to one. Um, Ans Ans sort of had like a little bit of a collapse, um, like mentally, like did not seem like she was super, super stable. Whereas Rabakina was just like ice cold, super focused the entire time, like didn't even celebrate, which was kind of awesome to be honest. So respect. Um, I also find it extraordinarily ironic that a Russian born woman won the women's singles title, um, representing Kazakhstan, which is just an absolute joke, but yeah, shout out to the Kazakh tennis federation for hooking that up. Yeah. I mean, talk about pay to play. I mean, that is whatever. I mean, good for Rabakina, like go get it. Like, you know, if Russia's not going to give you any support, their federation, like you should absolutely go elsewhere. Like, players do that all the time. Cam Norrie, suspect number one, right? Like, has only lived in London since he was like 16. Um, left because the New Zealand Tennis Federation, you know, said like, sorry, we're more focused on rugby, but you do you, man. Um, so it's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with that by any means, but ironic nonetheless. Uh you know, Rabakina, I think she has the potential to really be like a Petra Kvitova type of player um, at Wimbledon. Same sort of style, like pretty tall, great forehand, great serve. A little bit more, a little bit better of a mover than than Kvitova was, but she could definitely be a contender at Wimbledon for a very long time. I think on the women's side, I would not be interested in playing her. Anjabor, um, she'll get a Grand Slam. I don't know when. I don't know which one because her best surface seems to be clay, but nobody's beating Iga on clay, so that's kind of like a little bit of a crappy situation for her. Grass, you know, she definitely served incredible throughout this tournament, so, you know, maybe that's the one. But at the same time, like, if Grass was going to be the one that she's going to win her major on, like, wouldn't this have been the tournament for that to happen, right? Two first-time finalists and, you know, everything. Yeah, but you know what, Frank? Listen, if you can make a final on your quote-unquote least favorite surface in your first, you know, basically kind of appearance there, like as a legitimate top 10 player, I think you're going to be just fine at any one one of the two hard-court slams. And who knows, maybe she can take out Iga at Roland Garros as well. I mean, that's totally possible. So... I see Ons definitely winning a, a Grand Slam uh, in the near future. And uh, Rabakina is also going to be a very dangerous player at the U.S. Open. Similar situation, big, tall player, fast, hard courts. Hits the ball very flat. I think that the women's the women's game is now opening up, and I think it's really good because it's, really, it's getting really interesting. Um, Frank, last thing that I want to talk to you about here uh, that we wanted to discuss was the effect of actually the Russian ban by the All England Club. What was the effect that it had? We didn't have Medvedev and Rublev on the men's side. Uh, on the women's side, I believe we were missing da, 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 Victoria Azarenka, who has has made a, 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 a yep Pavlyushenkova. So we've had quite a bit. Um, Sabalenka, top five player from Belarus. Uh, so. I don't know. I I still disagree with it, and I think it kind of affected the level of play, honestly. There were a lot of other contenders that could have played, but they just ended up not being there. Effective ban. Stupid and pointless. Next topic. That's actually going to wrap it up for us. So, <laughs> uh, Thanks, Frank, for closing it off. But, guys, thank you so much for uh, for listening in. Um, if you guys want to be on the podcast, hit us up, uh, Breakpoint Podcast 7 on Instagram, DM, comment, whatever you'd like. We'd definitely love to have you on. We're going to have some really interesting episodes coming up in July. 
Um, we're going to have a couple of guests on. We're going to talk about some different topics since the tour is kind of settling down a little bit until August when we do U.S. Open stuff, which we're also going to have fantastic content for because Frank and I are obviously heavily involved in the U.S. Open in our hometown of Queens. Um, so, yeah, we're really excited to listen, uh, you know, to hear from you guys. We've been getting a lot of great feedback, and uh, we've got a lot in store for you. So thank you so much for tuning in, and we're signing off. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. See ya.